1: Hello, everyone, and thank you for tuning into this New Books Network podcast. My name is Catriona Gold, and today I'm very excited to be speaking with Eva Haifa-Giraud about her new book, What Comes After Entanglement? Activism, Anthropocentrism, and an Ethics of Exclusion. Eva Haifa-Giraud is senior lecturer in Digital Media and Society in the Department of Sociological Studies at the University of Sheffield. Her book was released with Duke University Press in 2019 and is an important critical intervention in academic debates around entanglement and the political meaning and implications of that concept. It's also full of fascinating detail about UK and international activist movements and ways of organising, much of which is drawn from Eva's own experience in particular movements, which I hope we'll get to hear more about shortly. So without further ado, welcome to the New Books Network, Eva.
0: Hi. um, Thanks so much for inviting me. It's really, really appreciative.
1: Great. So my first question is always the same. I'd like to know a little bit about you, Eva, your academic trajectory. What drives you to do the work you do? And then from there, what inspired you to write this book? Really what we want to know is who are you and how did you get here?
0: Well, what I would say is I'm going to pinpoint kind of two key events that I think shaped my writing of the book both of which happened when I was an undergraduate and studying at the University of Edinburgh Um, and this was back quite a few years ago I would say um, in sort of circa 2005 and sort of two key things happened that year as I was kind of studying my kind of English degree somebody happened to give me a pamphlet an activist pamphlet um, called Beasts of Burden which I ended up naming my first academic article um, in sort of tribute to in the end. But this pamphlet was just um, an analysis really of um, the relationship between capitalism and um, animal agriculture. And it was just a kind of really straightforward Marxist analysis of how kind of animals had played a key role and animal exploitation had played a key role in capitalism. And I can remember just thinking, isn't it amazing that you'd know theory so much that you'd be able to pare it down, boil it down into this succinct, accessible pamphlet? And I just felt really excited about that idea. And that then inspired me to go on and do a master's um, in critical theory and and then a PhD, which has eventually kind of given rise to this book. The other key event, also in 2005, were in Scotland um, in the summer of that year. There were a lot of um, international protests Um, in opposition to the G8 which was um, being held as a a gathering in a kind of very wealthy hotel um, in the nearby sort of um, town Gun Eagles and um, there was a lot of organising that went on in relation to that event and looking at all of the different tactics really made me sort of interested I suppose in um, social movements who were involved in different forms of organising and I kind of actually talk about some of the movements then um, who I sort of saw at work then in the book um, itself. So, yeah, it was a real kind of, I suppose, nexus of um, different factors of activism, of, I suppose, studying theory at university for the first time, and also of um, just becoming aware of how people write and bring theory and activism together in interesting ways. And so, yeah, that's what really kind of inspired me to go on and do further study and eventually kind of get the PhD and write the book.
1: Right. Yeah, that's really interesting. I don't think I knew all that detail. So thank you for sharing that. I'd really like if you could also set the stage a little bit for the academic debates that you're engaging with in this book. The starting point for this book is academic debates around the concept of entanglement. But what is entanglement could you perhaps spend some time introducing us to this concept so where does it come from what is it responding to and who are the key thinkers associated with it
0: yeah so sure it's one of those titles isn't it where those kind of in the know when they hear the title like what comes after entanglement will say like oh yeah that that speaks to these debates that I'm familiar with and those who aren't familiar with that body of theory are just it just seems like a weird, really weird title, so I'll, I'll do my best to give a kind of quick gloss of what I mean by that. Before I do so, though, I should say that after publishing the book and getting some really productive and you know critical feedback in in talks, I've sort of realised that my account of entanglement in the book was quite um, simplistic and quite kind of narrowly focused on a, a suppose a particular body of literature that's emerged in relation to non-human animals, environments, and often from a field called science and technology studies, which is the kind of sociological analysis of emerging science and technology. Um, And there are some very different traditions that have looked at entanglement in different ways in fields such as kind of world history, and that they're not the focus that I'm looking at. I'm I'm much more focused on this kind of tradition of thinking about relationships between humans and non-human animals as entangled. And for me, the kind of key thinkers in that area who sort of inspired the book were people like um, Donna Haraway, who um, produced a book that's probably one of my kind of touchstones, I suppose, during and it came out during the first year of my PhD called When Species Meet. And sort of central to this book is the idea that kind of human and animal lives are kind of impossible to separate from one another. You know what it means to be human and what it means to be other species of non-human animals are kind of i suppose have been so profoundly co-shaped through very particular histories that yeah what it means to be human doesn't really make sense or can't be really be extracted out of that history and um that kind of focus on i suppose these kind of historical these kind of everyday ways in which humans are kind of can't be abstracted out and separated from their relations with other beings. I at the time finding sort of really inspiring and the wellspring potentially of some really kind of important ethical moves that were happening in a lot of fields at the time, where there was a push to kind of move beyond anthropocentrism, a kind of push to move beyond the idea that kind of humans or particular humans anyway are kind of at the centre of things. And everything else should be treated as a kind of set of resources to be kind of used for sort of human needs and this focus instead of saying no 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 let's not think about humans as removed and above from relationship and above sort of relations with other beings um, and instead firmly sort of entangled with them seems seemed at the time like profoundly democratizing and kind of profoundly valuable in kind of unsettling human exceptionalism there are sort of other thinkers that would drawn on particularly by Haraway, but have since been really influential and in taken up in other fields, like Karen Barad, for instance. But but it's really those lineages um, from thinkers in feminist science studies who then be taken up um, in fields like animal studies, environmental humanities to sort of emphasize these entanglements between humans, non-human animals, microbes, minerals, <laughs> environments that I've found really productive, but the kind of point in the book is I also have felt these approaches have sometimes had their limitations, indeed quite sharp limitations, um, when they've been sort of engaged within practice.
1: Right, which leads on really well to my next question. It's clear that a focus on entanglement has some really inspiring possibilities for decentering human or unsettling certain kinds of anthropocentric hierarchies that we might otherwise take as given. But you argue that it does have these particular limitations, especially when you try to put it into practice politically, or, mm. you know, in an activist context. Maybe you could talk a bit bit about what the limitations you see of this particular understandings of entanglement from this STS context. Thank you for that clarification. And why all this matters politically, and, and then move from there to the ways you discuss exclusion in your book. Yeah, so the, the
0: limitations um, that I suppose I, I was trying to work through in the book were twofold, really. So, on the one hand, I felt that sometimes there was an almost kind of uncritical celebration of all manner of different entanglements between humans and non human beings. I mean, um, one of the case studies Haraway talks about in um, her book, and that has been again, engaged with by a lot of other thinkers are relations between humans and lab animals. And those kind of particular encounters are obviously might be bodily relations with animals, but they're also sites of, of violence and subject to these kind of long histories of breeding animals specifically for the purpose of experimentation. And I, I kind of I started thinking, what does it mean? that these body of theory that's set up to be kind of radically um, de-centering of the human being applied to all sorts of contexts where um, sort of human needs are are often prioritised and and front and centre. Similarly kind of um, domestication is a kind of key theme in a lot of literature that's engaged with this body of theory whether that's um, sort of agricultural animals and breeding practices and sort of you know encounters on in farms etc or whether that's um you know relationships between humans and dogs in everyday households and there's this kind of again quite a kind of celebratory account often of the ways in which um individuals or groups of people might almost get a tacit felt understanding of um their the needs of other species through kind of everyday interactions And while I think that's true, we obviously, I think if you live with a non-human animal, you do kind of, um, obviously you get a sense of kind of what they need and what, you you start to develop this kind of intuition of sort of new forms of communication emerge between species. But many of these relationships also need to be contextualised again in kind of long institutional histories of certain forms of, of violence. And I think being overly celebratory of those entanglements can kind of miss miss that it misses for instance all of the um dogs that have been kind of put down in pedigree dog breeding um it misses for example the kind of behaviors that might have been kind of um sort of tried to be forced out of um particular species in order to make their lives more compatible with humans it misses you know in the case of laboratory animals the fact that you know and this is a, a project i did with my um colleague Greg Holland you know if you think about the standard laboratory dog a beagle one of the reasons beagles are used is because they're you know particularly friendly animals mm-hmm. they're kind of compatible with lab, lab science and um, because of their temperament and partly that's because the long history of breeding dogs in particular ways and long histories of sort of manipulating experimental spaces to sort of mean that beagles are kind of happy and can be handled easily And so there's all sorts of different forms of quite violent exclusion, whether that's exclusion of behaviour, whether that's the kind of killing of particular animals that often lie behind encounters with other species in, in the present. And it's that really that I was kind of trying to bring to the fore, really, in the book to say, right, let's not just focus on particular kind of entanglements that people have with other species, Let's also think about the kind of histories of what's been excluded, sometimes violently, in order for that encounter to take place. Um, I've maybe talked a little bit too long on that. I can talk about activism as well, but you might want to move on to a different... uh...
1: No, that's, that's wonderful. So it sounds like there can be a sort of presentism almost or erasure of certain kinds of violent histories when we just valorize entanglements as they exist would that be a fair
0: yeah and I worry that it can also foreclose change you know so if we're in valorizing particular relations sort of now does that mean that kind of ways of thinking about those things differently become impossible that might require larger kind of institutional and, and structural change maybe to come into being but I think that's that's the kind of flip side of things. If we're kind of really celebrating entanglements with non-human beings sort of now, does that kind of sort of valorise the world as it is and make ways of thinking things otherwise kind of difficult? And I suppose that's where activism comes in in many ways because it's often proven, you know, various histories of animal and environmental mm-hmm. activism. We all know that there are tensions around different forms of activism, but I think something that's really productive about looking at activism is activism often drawn attention to sort of patterns of, of violent exclusion in order to ask how it can be contested um, and I think that's what's been so productive and that's really what motivated me to try and sort of lay case studies from activism alongside this body of theory
1: right And these debates are very much live. We don't necessarily see see it articulated in these theoretical terms, but there's been a lot of articles recently, I mean, more than I remember there being in the past about the ethics of pet keeping, for example, which I think really your work shines light on the broader kind of theoretical, academic, ethical questions around things like that that don't necessarily get aired out in these shorter form articles. So I think for people wanting to understand those debates that are really live right now. I think your work is really valuable. Oh, thank you. We should definitely move to, to talk about the activist movements that you you clearly take so much inspiration and just learning from here, and you give them due credit. So I, I do I want to know more, I want our listeners to know more about the activist movements that you looked at, draw from, even worked with and within in right. writing this book. I suppose you've said a little bit about how you became interested in these movements. Maybe you could say a bit more about the specific groups in the book um, and why you think they're important to understand.
0: I think for me, so as I said, it was this kind of it was this kind of moment in two thousand five that I found particularly inspiring. But one of the other groups that I found really inspiring and that sort of prompted me in terms of thinking of thinking about this in a lot of depth were well, kind of much more small scale groups. So I lived in um, Nottingham at the time when I was studying my masters and my PhD, and there was a kind of food activism group there called Veggie Catering Campaign, who has been going since the nineteen eighties and been providing um, food at demonstrations. They, they're often sort of seen as the campaign caterers of the UK activist scene because they kind of provide food support and morale, really. And uh, there were kind of some interesting connections there because they were also one of the caterers who um, were at the um, 2005 G8 protests. And I think that kind of connection really got me thinking in a lot of depth about the importance of sort of everyday activist infrastructures in creating space to think about the world otherwise, in creating space to say, well, what's being sort of prohibited and shut down by the world as it is and what can we do to create the infrastructures and sort of prefigure new ways of doing things that might kind of um, I suppose create space for thinking about how to rework some of the kind of entanglements we're bound in that seem like really difficult to get out of um, but might kind of give rise to more sort of just multi-species futures if they were reworked in some way. Um, so they, they were kind of real sort of personal, I think, inspirations. Um, but through kind of prompting that, those thoughts about kind of activist infrastructures and, and visual culture, I then just started thinking, well, what are some of the most key and important issues that have been talked about in the academic literature, but also, um, I think, have been engaged with in activist history? And for me, some of the biggest issues are to do with kind of food systems they're to do with um, animal research, they're to do with kind of environmental campaigning around kind of um, extinction. And um, they're, yeah, so they're, those those were the things that I was kind of concerned with. And I was particularly concerned with them because I feel that certain strands of animal and environmental activism are perhaps unfairly maligned, um, yes, by the mainstream media, but I also notice a tendency in certain academic texts to be quite dismissive of movements that I suppose were perceived to have quite a kind of, um, I don't know, simplistic understanding of of animals or of environments or of how how to do things Or, or, or these movements were often cast as a bit naive in academic context and I was getting increasingly frustrated because these groups are being talked about, but often almost as an aside, you've got a sentence here a sentence there saying, well, of course, animal activists think this, or of course, vegans think that. And I sort of was kept wondering, was that, you know, that really jars with my own experiences, you know, has anyone actually spoken to or engaged with many of these movements? Um, And so that's really kind of what prompted me to really want to sort of centralise, I suppose, activism in the book, but also very particular types of activism that have been marginalized, maligned, even made fun of, as I say, both in popular media and in academia. And because I think activists often have quite nuanced and I suppose, I don't know, thoughtful and complex ideas about the world themselves that I think can, can be productively put into dialogue with theory in academic context in order to trouble some of its assumptions.
1: Right. I mean, you went there. As you say, there are so many brilliant people with exactly these nuanced understandings. I mean, okay, not exactly these, but with, with very nuanced understandings of yeah, of ethics and of the political context that they're working within in animal and environmental movements. And I've seen the same thing you have of those people often being sort of straw manned or m- misrepresented within within the academy and um, in ways that I think often reveal an ignorance or a lack of interest, I think, in the context in which people are are working. So last year, I interviewed Helen Steele and one of her co-authors about their book, Deep Deception, which was about their experience of being victimized by undercover police officers and Helen Steele being one of the defendants in the McLibel case, which you write about in the book. And, you know, often the context that uh, activists and campaigners are, are working in are so very different and the demands that are placed on them are so very different from those we face in the academy that it can be frustrating to read rarefied accounts of activists doing X or Y, and maybe and not proceeding in a sort of nuanced or complicated manner. And I, I also appreciate the shout out to veggies. I love veggies in Nottingham, um, <laughs> don't we all? But so as you've opened up this conversation, I mean, to me, the book does provide some quite valuable fuel, frameworks for critiquing certain tendencies in academia that you might not use this term but some might call elitism and I wonder if you have more general thoughts on on what the political or even just intellectual value or otherwise of normative understandings of scholarship as in pursuit of nuance or complicating our understandings. What is the value of doing that, the limitations? Your own work is clearly very theoretically sophisticated, but at the same time, you're also conscious of the ways that certain kinds of intellectual projects and demands are inherently perhaps inaccessible to people without particular resources Mm -hmm. and also the ways in which academics can patronise or misrepresent activists or others outside the academy. So you discuss these tendencies in your book a little bit. And I'm wondering how you avoid doing that in your own work. How do you do justice to the movements that you're speaking about or working with? And do you have any advice for others on how to do that? So there, there might be a few, sorry, oh, a few there's questions. A, there's there. a lot in there, isn't there? So, <laughs> so respond to anything, oh, anything there. So, so
0: my, my first thought, I suppose, is one thing that I do worry about, uh, With this is a slight subject. One thing I do worry about, With the book, and I think would be a fair criticism is sometimes maybe to redress the critique of these forms of activism. Maybe I'm a little uncritical of certain um, certain kind of problematic elements of of activism, and I I kind of feel like I'd I'd write the book quite differently now. Maybe look at different case studies, etc. But but I think yeah, I think I'd probably frame things slightly differently I, I mean i'm not i don't I wouldn't say i'm like uncritical i think i do point to, to tensions and problems even with something like mc that's been so influential i think you know we can all we can all look back at those original pamphlets and think there were elements of them that we wouldn't reproduce um similarly i would think if we look at um so the last chapter i think is probably um i'm more kind of disappointed with the way that I framed it where I was talking about popular environmentalisms and I think that be, have been way more critical in that. Um, at the same time, so this this kind of problem of, of nuance, at the same time, I, I do think these forms of activism are often kind of more, I think we can be super critical of activism and in certain individuals within communities while at the same time recognising that things are much more nuanced and complex than they seem. The flip side of that is, as you've said, sometimes kind of calls to nuance and complexity can be quite kind of depoliticizing and, and stop any sort of form of action happening at all. And that's the kind of tension I really wanted to sort of point to in the book or we'll try to work through and grapple with, with seriously. I mean, it's such a big question in terms of saying... So obviously, we could talk about there are different directions you could take it. And then we could talk about the kind of publishing economy and everybody got to fi- having to find a sort of new gap in the literature, and often a way of doing that, isn't it? Is saying like, well, actually, this person says this, this person says this, but it's more complicated than it than it seems. But that's probably kind of a really bad faith reading, and I think that there's a, a much fair faith reading, and to sort of acknowledge in some ways that some things are complicated and need there's a struggle to find the right vocabulary to sort of pinpoint things. So one of the things, for example, that I find really um, frustrating or, or offensive are these kind of tropes or stereotypes that circulate about really influential scholarships, such as the work of, say, Judith Butler, for instance, that's been sort of so influential. And it's sometimes talked about in such a derisory, offensive way as being overly complex, pretentious, all of this. And for me, the kind of point of Butler is it's, it's you know, their the work, the work is really trying to sort of finding a way of talking about something that's really complicated to talk about and finding the right language, the right terminology in order to, you know, articulate that. And sometimes that is hard. Sometimes that act of working things through, pinpointing things is going to lead to things sounding complicated. And then but that work needs to be done in order to, to sort of work things through. On the flip side, you might then get, um, I suppose, people who sort of use complicated vocabulary, but maybe not not be doing that fine-grained work to, to pinpoint things. And it's really hard then, because then you go around making judgments about, like, is this good writing or is this pretentious? And it, that can go, go down quite a difficult path. So I, I do think that kind of idea of complexity is difficult, and I think it gets levelled at the social sciences in particular, for being like overly complex when sometimes it's just trying using a kind of precise vocabulary. All of that said, again, I don't think in terms of the way of writing, I would have written this book in the same way today. It was me trying to kind of grapple with ideas and frame things. And I think I ended up reproducing some of the complexity in in language and in sentence structure really unnecessarily and work I've done since then I've really tried to shift my focus and keep to much shorter sentences really think a bit about well is is this how intelligible is this sentence and I think I got so immersed with trying to work through and within this particular paradigm of of framing things maybe maybe there was something sort of sacrificed um, because of that um I think my mum said oh you know your book on veganism is much uh more clear and interesting than the, than the sort of first book and I was like, oh, you know obviously I was like oh out. but um I, I you know I could I can totally understand why <laughs> why someone would say that
1: well I mean yeah that's uh that's at least an endorsement of the of the veganism book and I mean I think I think we do need to be clear as well i yeah i appreciate you saying that we do need to be clear about the value of dense theoretical work i mean not not necessarily inherently valuable it depends if it's well done but particularly in the in the context of conservative scaremongering about critical race theory and this broader persecution of of critical scholars in uh, certain parts of the world we do need to defend what is valuable about Complicated theoretical work. I think we can do that at the same time as we can critique academics who may not even be the same people who are doing that work for misrepresenting activist movements.
0: Yeah, I, I agree, and it, and it often isn't. Often, often these things aren't necessarily <laughs> the, same, the same people. It's, it's this ideas traveling in in interesting and problematic ways. Sometimes, um, I, do, I do think it's yeah I do think it's tricky though that idea of I suppose it is easy to get stuck in a paradigm of of talking in a particular way and one of one of the things that I know that I've kind of I kind of deliberately did was I, I felt a little bit like there is there's of course there's lots of critical scholarship about activism in fields like social movement studies in fields um in, in sort of animal studies concepts in like crit- critical animal studies who um, maybe are drawing much more on an animal liberation tradition. But one of the issues is there wasn't much or not enough maybe crossover between those fields. So there was this kind of body of work that was very theoretically informed um, and particularly this particular type of theory that emphasised entanglement coming together, etc. And then this other work over here that was much more kind of had a normative sort of ethical agenda. And I think part part of what I really wanted to do was because of the influence of that body of theory, I felt like it was really important to try and sort of say, look, to to try and almost get taken seriously in in that field or to, to, to get taken seriously in theoretical terms. I feel like it, it was necessary for me to show that I kind of understood that body of theory, which did then necessitate maybe using using that language, um, rather than me being sort of um, dismissive of it and and for me being taken seriously. Uh, yes, it might be a, a kind of issue to do with academic capital and all of that, all of that sort of thing, or, or you know, career building, etc. But for me, it was I suppose politically important in that in, or at least uh, important in a, in a, in terms of what I was hoping to do, in terms of my sort of aspirations with with the book, was to try and kind of not just speak to other people that agreed with me, but to try and engage maybe with other scholars who actually I think could have a conversation, even we that we have kind of ethical and um, political differences in our work but maybe wouldn't have done if I didn't really sort of show that I could engage with the, I sort of understood where they were coming from conceptually. Um, And hopefully that makes sense.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I think that's a great thing for us all to aspire to is kind of reach across and yet to demonstrate these forms of, I don't know if you call it cross disciplinary, but I mean, you are speaking to several disciplines with this book these forms of understanding that do cross these divides or or attempt to. I think that's a really great place for us to end. But first, I would like to ask what you're working on now or, or what you've been working on since this book, how you've been carrying these themes forward. I mean, you mentioned your, your other book on veganism, so maybe you could say a bit about that.
0: Yes, yeah, so I have been doing um, a lot of work on, on veganism um, so the vegan book is um, slightly more recent, and that was in part because veganism is a is a theme within what comes after Entanglement. I think I think the chapter maybe that I'm happiest with is about um, food activism, and uh, yeah, and veganism in particular as a form of prefigurative politics. And what I was really interested in writing a bit more about is really thinking. I just became really fascinated with veganism suddenly. I've only seen this explosion of uh, popularity and obviously I've been vegan for like almost 20 years now. I I know you've been vegan a long time as well. And I think probably many people like us have just seen this absolutely huge proliferation, mostly of quite kind of commercial vegan products, but this proliferation of things that's made it kind of a lot easier to be vegan. And then alongside that, there's been kind of, I suppose, some concern about whether that's led to a depoliticization of what it means to be vegan and whether animal ethics in particular has been marginalised from that. And so I was kind of really interested in sort of getting a more um, in-depth understanding of some of the tensions around veganism today, you know, what potentials have been opened up by this kind of unprecedented popularisation, but also what limitations does it have, what tensions are there, you know, what, what pathways forward might there be um and I'm still I think you know I really enjoyed writing that book this the first book was just so laborious um and that it just had and I think one of the reasons I'm not happy with it is that I just had to write and rewrite the chapter so many times probably added to the complexity but the veganism book I sort of read it and it wrote it in a sort of much more constrained period of time and feel yeah still things you do I think like anything you and change things but it's made me more kind of excited to do work on that topic because I think it is still expanding and I think I wrote that book still now like a couple of years ago and veganism's evolved even more since that period of time so I think there are still lots of things to be said about contemporary veganisms um, and their kind of political and ethical potentials today.
1: Okay, so another book, uh, you know, a decade from now on on that subject, veganism too, Um, perhaps. (laughs) I I hope so. And uh, yeah, maybe we'll get to talk about that. I, uh, I hope to speak to you again about your next book. And it's been wonderful talking with you today. So thank you so much for coming on the show. And thank you everyone else for tuning in today. Once again, my name is Catriona Gold, and I've been speaking with Eva haifa Giraud about her new book, What Comes After Entanglement? Activism, Anthropocentrism, and an Ethics of Exclusion, which was published by Duke in 2019. So I highly recommend picking up a copy from your local bookstore, direct from the publisher, or from any ethical retailer. Thank you all for listening, and thanks again, Eva, for joining me today.
0: Thanks so much again for having me.